listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back, everybody. It's episode three of Ohio v. The World. Thank you guys so much for listening to the first two episodes, William McKinley and Ulysses S. Grant. And today you join us for episode three, James Garfield vs. The World. Today we're talking about Cleveland, Ohio's president, James A. Garfield. He's one of my favorite presidents, uh, not just because he's from Ohio, but as far as a person, maybe not his actual presidency. He's one of the most unlikeliest chief executives. Garfield's probably the poorest we've ever had. Uh, born in a small cabin with a dirt floor outside Cleveland, raised in extreme poverty by his mother after his dad died when James was, was less than two years old. He's perhaps our smartest president. I put him up there with, uh, with Teddy Roosevelt on that. A real renaissance man, math, science, literature, politics. He was a master of all these subjects. And his hard work and natural gifts as a scholar lifts him from obscurity and poverty to the White House in 1880. I didn't know very much about Garfield, even though I had lived just a few blocks from his memorial at Lakeview Cemetery in Cleveland Heights. It was the amazing book by one of our guests today, Candace Millard, her Destiny of the Republic from 2011. That's the book that really opened my eyes to his incredible life, his rise and tragic murder, and I've always wanted to tell this story. I'm so glad she joined the show from her home outside Kansas City to tell the story of Garfield and the story of his crazy assassin, Charles Gateau, uh, and you know, her subtitle of, the, of her book, Destiny of the Republic Reads, we'll learn about the madness, medicine, and the murder of a president. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, rate or review us. You can do that on your phone just by scrolling down uh, and clicking review. We, we read a review or two on the air. Uh, don't forget also you can support the show. We have awesome Ohio V the World t-shirts for sale, $20 free shipping. Uh, you can find some pics of them on our Facebook or Instagram and I'll ship those directly to your door. Just email us at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. Our other guest today, we're joined by Todd Arrington, the site manager at the National uh, Park Service's James A. Garfield National Historical Site. It's in Mentor, Ohio. Garfield's home with his wife, Lucretia, or Crete, as he called her, and their kids. Mentor, Ohio, about 30 miles east of downtown Cleveland. A really cool presidential museum historic home where Garfield pioneered that first front porch campaign in U.S presidential election history. Todd and I met last summer to tour the site We t- and talk about Garfield, and I really can't wait to get back. It's a really cool spot. Uh, go to www.mps, National Park Service, nps.gov, backslash J-A-G-A, J-A-G-A for more info, obviously. The grounds are open right now, but the museums are all closed. Also, Sarah Chase, the executive producer of the popular podcast Clear and Vivid, with Alan Alda. Yes, that Alan Alda from MASH and many other shows and movies. She joins us today. She's a graduate of Garfield's alma mater, Hiram College, and a fan of our show. She hops on to talk about Garfield and his years at Hiram, which was then called the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute. Uh, And we had to ask her about some of the amazing interviews they've done on their show. Uh, Really cool podcast, Clear and Vivid. Put that in your rotation. Uh, It's a show about stories and communicating better with others, whether that's one person, 
and or many guests on her show. You know, recently she's had Anthony Fauci, Paul McCartney, um, you know, and how to communicate with the world. Uh, again, cool podcast, clear and vivid. We'll talk to Sarah today. Speaking of the world, it's time for episode three. So strap in for the story of the unlikely rise and unnecessary death of our 20th president from Mentor, Ohio. It's episode three, James A. Garfield versus the world. Miss Ohio View the World and I take a trip every two years to Washington, D.C., we go to watch Ohio State play at Maryland, just outside the district, and I get to spend a few days dragging her to every museum I can get to. We can then go watch Ohio State crush the Terrapins on the football field. We eat some crab cakes, uh, and we always stay near the mall, uh, walking by the U.S. Capitol, the National Mall. And one afternoon, we're walking by the Capitol, and we see this beautiful statue of James Garfield on the western side of the Capitol. It's built in 1887. There's three figures at the base of it, a student another a warrior, and lastly, a statesman. Garfield was excellent at everything he did, especially those three things, student, warrior, statesman. He's a genius who rose to be a general in the U.S. Army, a two-star general, and after 18 years in Congress, he becomes the unlikely 20th president. Our guest today, Candace Millard, one of my favorite authors, uh, brought this overlooked Ohio into life in her 2011 book, Destiny of the Republic. And I know I tell you to buy a lot of books. We do a book recommendation every episode. But this is really one of my favorite books of this decade. It won the Edgar Award, uh, named after Edgar Allan Poe, for the best true crime book in 2012. It's a history book, a medical journal, and, and a true crime thriller. I saw Candace uh, speak twice here in Columbus and, and got up to ask her this question. And we'll start today's show with that same question. Garfield's presidency was cut short by this shocking act of violence. But we asked Candace Millard, does she think James Garfield would have made a great president? Yeah, I do actually think he would have made a really great president. What was interesting about him, you know, he was um, incredibly poor. He was our last president born in a log cabin. He didn't have shoes until he was four years old. You know, his mother and his brother scraped enough, up enough money to give him $17 to go to school because they knew that he was so brilliant and could do really great things. And he did, you know, he, um, he went to um, what was in the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute. Um, and when he was just a sophomore in college, he's still a student, they made him a professor, an assistant professor of literature, um, mathematics, and ancient languages while he was still a student. And he um, became the president of the university when he was 26. He wrote an original proof of the Pythagorean theorem while he was in Congress. Um, he was just, he, he was an incredible classicist. He knew the entire Aeneid by heart in Latin. So you just try to imagine that in, in any um, politician today. It's just extremely, extremely rare. He was absolutely brilliant. But more than that, I think he had a heart to match his mind. You know, he, he um, hid a runaway slave. He was um, a hero in the Union Army in the Civil War. Um, he was absolutely instrumental in bringing about black suffrage. Um, Frederick Douglass stood next to him um, when he gave his inaugural address. You know, he meant so much to so many people. You know, he, he meant something to, to immigrants, to pioneers, to 
freed slaves to former slave owners. I mean, he, he was bringing the country together in a way that it, it hadn't been unified since the Civil War. James Abram Garfield is born in 1831 in a log cabin just outside Cleveland, Ohio. He and perhaps Andrew Johnson come from the humblest and poorest families in U.S. history for, for men who become president. He's our last president to be born and raised in a log cabin, and not even a particularly nice log cabin. He loses his father before he's two years old uh, after he dies from complications of fighting a forest fire that threatened their home. We ask uh, our second guest, Todd Arrington, the site manager at the Garfield National Historic Site, to talk about his youth in the Moreland Hills area, again, east of Cleveland. Well, Garfield's born in Orange Township, Ohio. It's now called Moreland Hills, uh, which is, you know, really not that far from, from our location in Menor. It's probably 20 minutes or so, just, you know, probably a good 20 minutes or so from really from downtown Cleveland, too. And the family's very poor. In fact, Garfield is notable as the last president actually born in a log cabin. And it's a fairly small cabin, and it's, shall we say, very rustic. It's, you know, got a dirt floor and all this kind of stuff. And then his father dies when, right. when Garfield is only about 18 months old. So Garfield never really knows his dad because his dad dies so young. And of course, the death of his father puts the family really in even, even more poverty-stricken circumstances. Uh, so now he's got, you know, three older siblings, uh, and he's being raised by basically what we would think of today as, you know, a single parent. So that, so the, the family was extremely poor, and Garfield worked very hard, even as a young man, to try to bring in a little extra money for the family. Garfield and I have one thing in common. He loved the sea. We're both landlocked here in Ohio. I was actually putting the show together uh, as I sat and looked out across Lake Erie. We took our dog and, and the baby up there for Memorial Day weekend and rented a house right on the lake. Our, we had a planned trip to a beach paradise in Florida that was scrapped thanks to coronavirus. But much like myself, he loves to just be near water. It's invigorating, rejuvenating. Most of all, it's relaxing. But Garfield doesn't have the money to rent or, or live at a beach house. He goes for the nearby Ohio and Erie Canal as a kid. And it's a job that nearly takes his life. We talked to Todd about Garfield's short-lived career as a canal boy. Yeah, Garfield dreamed of living a life at sea. And the closest thing he can get as a teenager is working on the Ohio and Erie Canal. And he's basically a canal boy. He basically walks on land along the, the, the canal, helping pull boats through the canal. It's, it's very hard work, very physically demanding. The other thing that's interesting about Garfield's interest in, in the sea and being a sailor is that he never learned how to swim. <laughs> he fell into the canal several times. He managed not to drown. He got very sick uh, with what we think is prob was probably malaria and ended up having to go home to uh, Orange Township where his mother kind of nursed him back to health, but then also started talking to him about what other things he maybe should do besides go back to the, to the canal. She didn't want him going back to the canal. It's a dangerous job. And so, um, so she's the one that really convinced him to, uh, to try to, to get an education and, and you know, take on the life of a student. A third and final guest for today is Sarah Chase. Sarah lives in New York City where she's the executive producer of a podcast for the famous actor from MASH, among other things, Alan Alda. The show's called Clear and Vivid. We'll talk to her later about the show, which is an awesome podcast that you should be listening to. But Sarah is also a graduate of Hiram College, a liberal arts school in Northeast Ohio, and happens to be the, the college of James Garfield. As Candace Millard said, his family scraped together $17, their life savings, to send James to college. 
He's so brilliant, and they had to do it. They had to do whatever they could to save and to make it happen. We talked to Sarah Chase about where is Hiram College, and it wasn't even called that in Garfield's day when he went there in the 1850s. I graduated from Hiram College in 2002 uh, with a degree in political science and philosophy. Hiram's about 40 minutes um, outside of Cleveland, and it's um, located uh, next to Warren in, in sort of that area. Um, it's off of it, near Ravenna. Well, Hiram's always been one of the, the best liberal arts colleges in Ohio. Um, that sort of portion of Ohio, which is the um, the Connecticut Land Reserve, is kind of you know well known for Denison, Hiram, Oberlin. In uh, Kenyon, a lot of the liberal arts colleges really got an establishment there. Um, and Hiram was founded in 1850 by the Disciples of Christ Church. Uh, and it was originally known, I love this name, as the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute. Garfield's among the first students at the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute, enrolling there in 1851, just after the school opened. We talked to Sarah Chase about Garfield's time at Hiram and how he just pulls himself up by his bootstraps how he would go from janitor to college president. He's a real-life goodwill hunting. He was both the janitor at the college, and then he also taught classes uh, to pay his way through. And not a lot of us are janitors and then teachers, though. Not not so frequently, no. Um, but I think it, it spoke to the intelligence of Garfield um, as somebody who really was sort of outstanding. Um, and there, I, I read a book one time that uh, said that Hiram was and is a place of high-mindedness and plain living. And I think uh, uh, Garfield certainly is, is um, an example of that. He meets Lucretia Rudolph at the Western Reserve Institute, and they marry after he goes to study at the prestigious Williams College in Massachusetts. He comes back. He returns to teach at Hiram, uh, and, or still then called the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute, and he becomes their president a year later. We talked to Todd Arrington about his intellectual connection to his wife that he called Crete. Uh, he married Lucretia Rudolph. She is also very intelligent, very educated for that era. And as brilliant as James Garfield was, he, he did comment that Lucretia was his intellectual equal in every way. They, they really had this, uh, this great relationship. They both loved literature. They loved to read. Uh, they read to themselves and to each other and to their children. And so I, I think that's really my favorite thing about Garfield's sort of intellectual life is that he had someone to share it with who he viewed as, as purely as an equal, and, and they were able to kind of pursue those, those things that they really loved and, and cared about and, and wanted to know more about with each other and then on with their children as well. Earlier this week, I was driving through Mansfield, Ohio, uh, and that's where Candace Millard is from. We just found that out doing the interview that she's actually from that area in north central Ohio. She talks about explaining to people, you know, during her life where she's from. When, you know, people ask and she's, she uses Mansfield, Ohio as this reference point. But it, I guess it doesn't really translate outside the Buckeye State. But, you know, I'm from Ohio originally, Lexington. Like, so by Mansfield? Yeah, Exactly. Yeah, okay. my husband always makes fun of me because um, when people ask where I'm from and I say Lexington, I always say, you know, it's near Mansfield. And he always says, no one knows where Mansfield is. <laughs> like, some people do. It's well, in Ohio, a, do. We tried not to fanboy too hard with Candace about her writing and researching process. But she spent four years on Garfield and writing Destiny of the Republic, and there's so much good stuff in there. 
we love the story of her researching at the Library of Congress, and she's going through letters and correspondence, boxes of it, uh, going through the Library of Congress's Garfield papers. And she opens one, and a bunch of hair falls out. We asked her to tell that story at the Library of Congress. Yeah, no, it took um, almost four years, and um, most of the research was done at the Library of Congress, um, the presidential papers in their Madison building, and I spent weeks and weeks there. And, um, you know, sadly, there hasn't been much interest in um, Garfield because he was president for such a short time, and as you said, he was one of the Gilded Age presidents that people kind of overlook. Um, and so there were so many um, boxes and boxes and boxes of material that nobody had seen for, for a long time. And um, so, you know, Garfield had been president for a short time, but he had been in the, in the, in the in Congress for almost 18 years. Um, Lucretia's papers were there, Conkling's papers, Chester Arthur's papers. Um, so anyway, I um, had asked for all these boxes of Garfield's papers and at the Library of Congress, you know, they have all these rules as they have to have because these are our national treasures. And so you can only have like five boxes on your um, little trolley at a time, one box on your table, one item out of that box. So, and they watch you carefully. So I'm, I'm a rule follower. I was carefully going through everything. I opened this uh, file that I don't think anybody had looked at for a hundred years. And inside was an envelope and the front of the envelope is facing the table. And so I didn't know what was in it. I had been opening hundreds and hundreds of envelopes and papers. So I opened this envelope and all this hair falls out. There's hair all over the table. And I turn over the envelope and the front handwritten is clipped from President Garfield's head on his deathbed. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> I'm trying to blow it back into the envelope thinking, oh, my, if they see this, you know, they'll kick me out. My career is over. Um, and it, so it was so startling, but at the same time, it was so moving. I mean, it looked like I could have clipped this hair from my child's head yesterday, you know, and it's just this incredibly powerful reminder of um, the fact that these people are real. You know, when we write about somebody like Garfield, but especially somebody like Roosevelt or Churchill or Lincoln, you know, they almost become mythical, but it was just a reminder that this is a real person. He was 49 years old. He was, you know, loved by his family and his children and his nation. And he held out so much promise and hope for our country. And it was an unbelievable tragedy. And it's just this powerful reminder to me of the responsibility that I have when I, you know, think that I'm going to write about some of these people that I have to take it incredibly seriously and do everything I can to make sure that I get everything right. Garfield's in the Ohio State Senate when war breaks out at Fort Sumter in April 1861. He's 29 years old. But he's ready. Well, he's as ready as someone with zero military training can be. But he's done the research in the months leading up to the war on military tactics, and he leaves the Ohio legislature and raises the entire 42nd Ohio Infantry Regiment. He's their commander, and they train at Camp Chase in Columbus in 1861 and join the Army of the Ohio uh, as the war is already in progress in Kentucky. Kentucky was up for grabs. They had not succeeded from the Union, but the Confederacy was fighting to claim this border state. On the border with Ohio, the fall of Kentucky would expose really the entire Midwest, Indiana, Illinois. It was Garfield and the Army of the Ohio's job to hold it. Garfield would achieve fame for his success at Middle Creek, 
when his attack from three sides stunned the Confederates in January of 1862. We talked with Todd Arrington about his service in the important Kentucky campaign and his first meetings with President Lincoln, who convinces him to run for Congress. Well, of course, Kentucky is one of the four border states. Um, you know, it's a state that has slavery, but never formally joins the Confederacy. Lincoln is, is absolutely adamant that he's got to keep these border states in the Union. And at one point, he sort of supposedly makes this quote that, you know, I, I hope to have God on my side, but I must have Kentucky. Garfield uh, takes the 42nd Ohio as, as part of the Army of the Ohio into eastern Kentucky and really is trying to uh, to get Confederates out of that part of the state as quickly as possible to try to secure Kentucky for the Union. Garfield fights, you know, a few relatively small, certainly uh, when we look at, you know, the really huge battles that were to come in the Civil War, these are relatively small engagements, but they do help sort of kick the Confederates out of Kentucky and help secure Kentucky for the Union. And that's one of the things that, that early in the war was a huge priority for, for President Lincoln. So he actually goes into the war really as, you know, initially as a, as a lieutenant colonel and then becomes a colonel. Uh, at, shortly after the operations in Kentucky, he's promoted to brigadier general. And then uh, he finishes the war in late 1863. The war is still going on, of course, at that point. Um, he leaves the army to go take a seat in the House, U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, and he had just been promoted to major general, two-star general. And uh, at one point, he does actually get a meeting with Lincoln, and, and Lincoln encourages Garfield to go to Congress because, of course, he's, you know, says, I'm paraphrasing, but something along the lines of, you know, I've got plenty of generals, but I don't have enough uh, solid Republican votes in Congress. And Garfield even remarks at one point in a letter or in his diary about, who am I to question the, the president of the United States, so I guess I'm going to Congress. General Garfield also served in some major battles including playing a role in the second day at Shiloh. He arrived late in the second day to help save Grant and the Union Army at that bloody battle in Tennessee in 1862. It's the bloodiest two days in U.S. history at that point, and maybe still the bloodiest. 23,000 Americans were killed or wounded at Shiloh. He serves at the Union's hard-fought loss at Chickamauga as Chief of Staff to General Rosecrans. He then joins the U.S. Congress, having won his seat while away at war. Between the Ohio legislature and Columbus, a couple years in the middle of some of the Civil War's biggest battles, and then joining the U.S. House of Representatives, Garfield is not in Northeast Ohio. He's not with his wife. And their marriage is suffering because of it, as most marriages would be if you were gone for four or five years. We talked to Todd Arrington about the strained marriage of Lucretia and James Garfield in the early years of their union. The marriage was very much in trouble for uh, for several years, really. The first several years were very difficult. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that he just wasn't around very much. Uh, at one point, Lucretia calculated that in the first five years of their marriage, they'd spent about 20 weeks together. Between him going off to Columbus before the Civil War as a, as a state senator, the Civil War coming and him joining the army and going off to fight, uh, they really didn't spend a lot of time together. And, you know, there were, there were a couple of instances uh, that we're, you know, aware of, maybe one or two at most, where Garfield was, you know, was, was unfaithful and, you know, you know confessed to her. Uh, he felt guilty and, and confessed to her and she forgave him. Uh, but yeah, by the time he's becoming very, very well known as a congressman and then starting to get some, some looks from people as a potential presidential candidate and then becoming president, they had a very, very solid relationship that was built on, you know, love and mutual respect and, and care for their children. 
And, uh, you know, like, a lot, like happens to a lot of us as they started to get older, they started to, to really realize what a great thing they had and how important it was for them to, to work on their relationship and to, you know, to, to be there for their children and to, and to have a strong partnership. James Garfield had legit abolitionist credentials. He saw the Civil War and his service in it as a righteous crusade right from the start. It's one of the many of the downsides of losing him early is maybe, just maybe, he could have moved the ball forward on civil rights. You're working against the vast majority of the country trying to do that, so no guarantees. You're working against the entire racist South, the racist Midwest, the racist West. Uh, but he would have tried, and that's better than you can say about a lot of the presidents after, after Grant, you know, our civil rights president from the last episode. We talked with Todd Arrington about the importance in James Garfield's life of racial equality. Um, we know of at least two instances where he, where he, he helped uh, escaped enslaved people who had made it to Ohio and were still trying to get, get further north. He was very, very vocal about slavery being an abomination both legally and morally. But, you know, Garfield was one of those who, you know, again, two days after Fort Sumter writes this letter that we quote all the time, where he says, you know, this is this war will soon assume the shape of slavery and freedom. In other words, at some point, everyone is going to recognize that that's what this is about. And then in another letter, you know, he says something along the lines of, you know, let this be a war for the union uh, until everyone comes to see that it needs to be a war for abolition. He was a very, very consistent, solid voice for for the rights of of black people before the Civil War, during the Civil War after the Civil War, up to the point where when he is inaugurated as president in, in March of 1881, at a time when a lot of even Republicans had kind of moved on to other issues, they felt like, okay, you know, the war's been over a long time, Reconstruction is over, we've done enough for, for African Americans, let's move on to bigger and better issues. Uh, Garfield was still talking about civil rights, and he even mentioned civil rights very prominently in his inauguration. Destiny of the Republic is not Candace Millard's only bestseller. Uh, she wrote for years with the National Geographic, and her first book, River of Doubt, was one of them that she might be most known for. Her telling of Theodore Roosevelt's near-death journey down an incredibly dangerous and uncharted, isolated section of the Brazilian rainforest, it's a classic. Friend of the show, Mike Albritton, a fellow Candace Millard fan, suggested that we ask her what it's like to be a top female historian in a previously male-dominated field, and who are some of her favorite female historians? So some of my favorites, obviously, Doris Kearns Goodwin is sure. a hero to so many of us. Um, I love Stacey Schiff. I think she's really, really interesting. She has a very strong uh, voice, I think, which I find really interesting. Um, Laura Hillenbrand, I love the, I love narrative nonfiction. Um, you know, I, it's funny that you say that because I remember when I uh, first wrote a proposal for my first book, The River of Doubt, which is about Theodore Roosevelt set in the Amazon, to get my agent, you know, I had sent her this proposal and, you know, she's this really powerful uh, female agent in New York. And I remember her saying, you write like a man. And I remember <laughs> thinking, huh. I think I just write like myself, you know, <laughs> and, um, and that's always the advice that I give to people who want to be writers. Don't 
try to take on a voice of somebody. I mean, obviously we all get inspiration from these people that we read and we admire and there are new people always coming up to be impressed by, but you have to tell a story the way you, what, what comes naturally to you, right? And, and I always try to tell a story the way I would want to read a story. And so that's why I never, ever, ever put myself in stories. A lot of times you'll read um, nonfiction and they'll, the, you're, you're totally engrossed in the story. And then all of a sudden the author will say, yeah. and then I went to this house, you know, it's still standing and blah, blah, blah. It's like, that's great. I assume that you did your research, put it in the notes, put it in acknowledgements, don't get in the way of the story. But again, I feel like woman, man, young, old, whatever your background, you, you have to tell a story the way you would tell the story, you know? And yeah. so all I can do is write like me. We check back in with Sarah Chase, a graduate of, from Garfield School, Hiram College, and the executive producer of Alan Alda's podcast, Clear and Vivid. We talked to Sarah about just how smart Garfield was, considered by many to be, you know, a genius. Well, I think he was definitely a, a very patient person. Um, he certainly was somebody who had a lot of humility, and you, you see that in his writings quite a bit. Um, he had a, an incredible ability to seek out answers, um, I think, and that was evident in, in sort of the way that he studied. He was also, uh, you know, very exceptional from an early age, too. I mean, he, he was... He was no more than 27 or 28 about the time he became the principal at Hiram. Um, so, I mean, he's certainly somebody who, who at a very young age um, was determined. Um, by all accounts, he was quite a gregarious person, um, very supportive of people. Um, and I, there was a great quote that I, that he, um, I'm not sure exactly when it was written. I think it was when he was president, but he said, uh, statesmanship consists rather in removing causes than in punishing or evading results. So I think he was definitely somebody who, you know, just knew the way of the world, um, knew how to get results, uh, and again, was just rather pragmatic and straightforward in his approach to things, um, which is something, you know, he was not a bloviating statesman. He was definitely somebody who wanted to get his hands dirty, uh, and, and when he did, he got, he got results. One of the reasons we had Sarah on was just to make sure that you guys know about her podcast, Clear and Vivid. You need to be listening to that show. We asked her about their shows in 2020 and their interview with one of my favorite satirical historians, Sarah Val. She has a book that focuses on Garfield's assassinations and all the assassinations. Uh, and Miss Ohio via the World and I, we love her book about the history of Hawaii, Unfamiliar Fishes, a must-read if you're ever going to the Aloha State. Alan Alda is the the host of Clear and Vivid, um, which is a podcast that we do that's uh, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google, uh, everywhere you like to listen to your podcasts. And um, uh, Alan was out in California not too long ago before all of this kind of broke out where we had a chance to interview Betty White and then uh, oh, nice. uh, Mel Brooks. And, <laughs> and we did Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner too. So we just added them to the lineup. Betty White's fine. She's doing well. <laughs> <laughs> we listened to your episode with uh, Sarah Val, uh, who's I think you know, such a such a fun treat. Uh, did you get to talk with her? And have you read any of her books? Oh, she's she's one of my my favorite guests that we've had on, and it was it was a fun episode. Uh, and of course, she wrote um, she's written the Partly Cloudy Patriot. She's written Assassination Vacation, right, which yeah. includes Garfield, and and she spent some time at Hiram College. And I've actually talked to her uh, a few times beforehand um, because she's she's very knowledgeable about a number of different subjects. Um, she lives out in Montana, so we we did it um, remotely. And um, I don't know if any of your listeners get a chance to. She often writes really good opinion pieces for the New York Times, too, which are, are worth 
uh, uh, worth reading. There's a ton of great new episodes from 2020, Clear and Vivid. We talked to Sarah just about some of those most popular episodes. I mean, you guys get some crazy big-time guessing. I look, just a quick list. Conan O'Brien, Judge Judy, Ben Stiller, Adam Driver, Tina Fey. So, you know, some of them are, are friends of Alan's. Some of them are people who we think would be interesting. You know, as he's he's a celebrity, so it's um, I guess it's a little bit easier sometimes. Um, and we actually did a, a really good interview not too long ago with with Anthony Fauci um, oh, as, wow. as this was starting to break out. Um, and Alan's known Dr. Fauci for, for a number of years, and we knew that he was an expert. And we, we added the bonus episode as sort of a, a really quick um, public service announcement, too, because we felt that, that he was somebody who was very clear and vivid about how he talks about his science and about medicine. Um, and we wanted to get some of the, the facts straight with him first. Um, but we've also had, you know, guests like um, most recently um, Tom Hanks, who Alan uh, met with the, at the SAG Awards. Um, and uh, I think one of our, at least my favorite episodes so far is the one we did with Paul McCartney. If you haven't heard that one, it's it's probably our number one episode so far. And um, Paul actually sat down at, at, at a piano that was in the in the studio and sort of was noodling on some chords. I was like, well, this is kind of how you come up with a song. And, you know, a, a lot of things that were just so spontaneous and so wonderful. Sarah found our show a couple of years ago. She was listening about a distant family member, Kate Chase, in our episode we did called Ohio vs. Celebrity. Go back and find that one. It's still one of my favorites. We'll have to have her back on to talk about Kate Chase's father, Salmon P. Chase, when we do an episode on him here in the coming years. Well, I, I appreciate you, uh, and I love listening to to, to this podcast too. I, mean, I I love Ohio. I love the state. Um, you know, having spent four years at at Hiram there, you know, I have a lot of friends from the Ohio area, and um, I'm a I'm a little bit of a relative of Salmon P. Chase, who was the first Republican governor of your state. Uh, so I I have an affinity for for Ohio. Um, and my mother was a uh, uh, she was a, a, an army brat and um, spent some time in Chagrin Falls, too, as she, as she was growing up. So as a distant relative of, of Salmon P. Chase. And I think that's kind of how you found the show, is you found our Kate Chase episode, right? Yeah, I was listening to that episode, which I, that's my favorite episode of, of that, what you've done. Um, Thank you. It's one of my favorites, Kate too. Chase. Yeah. And uh, she, she was rumored to have known Garfield, um, in potentially in, a, in an intimate way, too. Yeah. Um, and uh, so there was, there's a great book about her called American Queen, and uh, Garfield um, comes up quite a bit in that book, too. Uh, thank you, Sarah, so much. It sounds like we might end up having you back on the show next year, if that's all right with you. I'd love to, Alex. Thank you, and thanks for, for bringing Ohio to the world. Republicans dominate politics during this time known as the Gilded Age. Other than Grover Cleveland, no Democrat is elected for 56 years, from James Buchanan to, to Woodrow Wilson. But these Republicans are split into two groups. This inter-party struggle would play a role in the violent end of Garfield's life. The party is split into two factions, the Stalwarts and the Half-Breeds. I guess Garfield would be considered a half-breed. We talked to Todd Arrington about what is a Stalwart and what is a half-breed Republican. Those are really just two factions of the Republican Party at this time. The so-called stalwart, very much loyal to U.S. Grant. The half-breed, again, kind of a nickname here that is obviously meant to be derisive. Um, the half-breeds are um, really the other faction of the Republican Party. The only real difference between these two factions, there's really not much separating them. They all pretty much agree on how to treat the South. Uh, they all pretty much agree on, on fiscal issues. 
the really the main the main difference here, the main split between the two factions is what to do about the civil service. Stalwarts like the system that's in place, the, what we call patronage, where basically if you are in office or you win an election, you can dole out as many offices as you want to as many people as you want. Doesn't matter their qualifications or anything like that. To the victors go the spoils, uh, the spoils system. That's what this is. Um, whereas half-breeds tend to start at this point really looking at probably needing some reform in this system um, and needing to, uh, to, to start making sure people are qualified, having some kind of an exam, really professionalizing the civil service. That's really the main split between the two factions of the party. Otherwise, they agree on a lot. Last episode, Ulysses S. Grant vs. the World, we left the story of Grant at the start of the 1880 Republican National Convention in Chicago. Garfield attends the convention, which is not something that someone who's in the running is supposed to do. He was to give the nominating speech for John Sherman of Ohio. Garfield arrived with little expectation that he would be a possible nominee. The stalwarts and their leader, Roscoe Conkling, a very powerful senator from New York, uh, the stalwarts were united for a third term behind Ulysses S. Grant. The half-breeds were behind their candidate, Senator from Maine, James Blaine. Sherman from Ohio was kind of this third-place candidate. We talked a little bit about Sherman in our McKinley episode. Um, but his plan is basically to have both factions deadlock and then have them settle on, on Sherman. And sure enough, those factions did deadlock, but they didn't settle on John Sherman. Blaine and Grant have a lot of baggage dating back to the, you know, the 1860s. But Grant leads after the first ballot with over 300 votes. You need 378 to win the nomination. But he really couldn't get any crossover votes. The other 400 or so delegates were split between Sherman and Blaine, most going to, to James G. Blaine. Grant actually leads for the first 35 ballots. But on the 36th ballot, a dark horse candidate passes the threshold with 399 nominating votes after 36 ballots. It was in Chicago, and he had been asked to give the, John Sherman, who's the younger brother of William Tecumseh Sherman and was a senator from Ohio, had had this idea that he, because he knew that there were a lot of murmurings of people wanting Garfield to be the nominee, and he and he himself, Sherman, wanted to be the nominee. So he thought, I will have Garfield give my nominating address. But Garfield's speech at that convention, which, you know, it's this huge hall, there are 15,000 people. It's incredibly loud and raucous. And um, Garfield gets up to speak. And the speech he gave, and much of it was extemporaneous, was so beautiful and so powerful that in the middle of it, he said, my friends, I ask you, what do we want? And someone shouted, we want Garfield. <laughs> and the whole hall just went crazy. And he had a really hard time getting them to settle down so he could finish his speech. Um, but when it was over and they started casting their ballots, people started casting their ballots for Garfield, even though not only was he not a candidate, he didn't want to be a candidate and he tried to stop what was happening. But ballot after ballot, it kept coming back and what you know began as this trickle became a stream, became a flood of votes. And he suddenly found himself the Republican nominee for president of the United States. James Garfield, a relative unknown, found himself the nominee of the Republican party. We talked to Candace Millard about the fallout of his nomination and how it leads to the nomination of a stalwart lackey, 
Chester A. Arthur as his vice president. Candace also talks about his formidable Democratic opponent. So his opponent was Winfield Scott Hancock, who um, had also been a huge figure in the Civil War and the Union Army. He was a hero during the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, um, seen as a great leader. And so he was a formidable opponent, and everyone knew that. And so the Republicans knew that they especially would need New York to be in, and they especially would need the help of Moscow Conkling. And the, so the Republican Party was deeply divided at the time. The stalwarts who wanted to keep the spoil system. And this guy, Roscoe Conkling, was really the leader of that. So he was a senior senator from New York, and New York controlled the New York Customs House, which um, was hugely, hugely powerful. And he wielded that power as a weapon and he knew that Garfield would need his help and he was enraged that Garfield had won the nomination because he wanted his candidate, Ulysses S. Grant, to win the nomination and have a third term in the White House. So the only way they knew that they could get Conkling's help was to thrust on Garfield a running mate that was not at all his choice but was Conkling's puppet essentially. Um, which was Chester Arthur. Garfield had no choice in the matter, but Chester Arthur became his running mate. And that absolutely had a huge effect on Garfield's um, early days in the White House because Conkling had, had made himself Garfield's enemy and was fighting him at every turn. Garfield comes home to Lucretia and the kids in Menor, Ohio, as the Republican nominee. This is still 16 years from William Jennings Bryan's modern presidential campaign going across the country giving speeches, doing whistle-stop tours. You can go back and listen to part one of our first episode, William McKinley vs. the World, to learn about that first truly modern presidential campaign in 1896. But in 1880, Garfield and the Republicans decide on a different tactic, and they would use it effectively as well in 1896 with McKinley's front porch campaign. But Todd Arrington, our guest, talks to us about the campaign of James A. Garfield for president and where it all began from the site that he manages in Mentor, Ohio. Garfield comes out of his convention as a somewhat surprise nominee, goes home to Mentor, Ohio, as, as Rutherford B. Hayes tells him, sit cross-legged and look wise. Uh, and at this point in American history, that's actually sound advice because it's the parties at this point doing the heavy lifting on campaigns, not the candidate. Uh, but what he doesn't expect is people starting to show up at that home in Mentor, at that farm, uh, to see him. You know, Garfield was starting to get better known. Uh, he'd already been, uh, prior to this convention, he'd been elected to the Senate. So had he not become president, he would have been going to the U.S. Senate to represent Ohio there. A lot of people don't know that much about him. Certainly here in Northeast Ohio, he's very well known. You know, Garfield eventually decides, eh, it, it doesn't feel right to, to have all these people come uh, here to see me and meet me and talk to me and not acknowledge that they've done so. And so he eventually decides to start giving these speeches from the front porch of the house. So, and that's where we get this whole idea of the front porch campaign. It is, you know, the first time a candidate has done this. And so therefore it's one of the first times in American history where a candidate really did communicate directly with the public. But he did kind of start us on the road to the more modern style of campaigning by directly addressing people from the front porch. Um, you know, he had visits from, you know, small groups that were coming to visit. 
He had delegations of, of African-American Civil War veterans. There were bands playing on the lawn. There were reporters camped out there, sometimes for days or weeks on end. Um, he had a visit uh, late in the campaign from former President Grant and Senator Roscoe Conkling of New York, who he had, ends up having this great dispute with while he's president. You know, any number of groups of people coming to see him, you know, women from groups in Cleveland, businessmen from Indiana. Uh, at one point, he speak, uh, a group of German immigrants uh, come to see him and he speaks to them in German. Um, so, you know, maybe one of the first instances that we're aware of of a, of a, of a candidate campaigning in a foreign language. Out of 9.2 million votes cast, Garfield wins the election by less than 10,000 votes over Winfield Scott Hancock. He wins the important battleground states of Indiana, Ohio, and most importantly, New York, in its 35 electoral votes. Garfield wins a slim victory, and from a log cabin with a dirt floor, to a janitor at the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute, all the way to the White House. James A. Garfield of Mentor, Ohio, becomes the 20th president of the United States. with Todd Arrington, the site manager of the Garfield National Historic Site, about Garfield's inauguration speech on March 4, 1881. He talks about equality and the need for fair treatment of the country's African Americans. It's this speech that gives so much hope to the oppressed throughout the country. Garfield was poor. He was of the lower class. He knew that the system was rigged, and he had risen to the highest office in the land. His story was motivational to millions of Americans. He talks about... Um, that this, this horrible sort of cataclysmic war happened and the issues uh, have been settled, the union has won, uh, and now, you know, uh, he intends to, to honor the Constitution. He does refer to, to things that are near and dear to his heart, too. Education as a former, uh, not only, a, you know, a longtime student, but a former teacher, a former uh, professor, a former college uh, president, you know, the, the, the principal of the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute. He does also, uh, as I mentioned earlier, refer back to civil rights. Uh, and for me, that's the part of the speech that really stands out to me, where he talks about the elevation of the Negro race from slavery to the full rights of citizenship. There can be no permanent disenfranchised peasantry in the United States. So he's talking about civil rights. He's talking about voting rights. He's talking about the fact that the Republican Party, in his mind, still has work to do, the government, the federal government still has work to do to uh, continue to, to lift African-Americans up and, uh, and to make sure that they do, that, you know, they are able to take advantage of what he calls the full rights of citizenship. All the hope and the promise of the Scarfield administration meets the cold, hard reality of being the chief executive of the United States in 1881. The job kind of sucks. Garfield's first months are filled with appointing thousands of positions in the government, not just ambassadorships, but basically everything in the government. Garfield would have dozens of office seekers camped outside the White House every morning. And him and his staff of like three people were supposed to meet with the guy, you know, who wants to be the postmaster of Texarkana. It was tedious and, and pretty insane that that's just how bad it had gotten. The this, this civil service mess that the, the government had created. But these jobs, patronage, as it was called, was how senators kept power. They nominated people to these many positions, and the president was just supposed to comply. Men like New York Senator Roscoe Conkling had built this convoluted spoil system, and he was its conductor. Conkling and the spoil system flourished during the Grant administration. 
President Hayes, before Garfield, had mostly played along. Not entirely, as we'll outline how he battled with Conkling as well, over appointments specifically over Chester A. Arthur. Todd Arrington introduces us to Senator Roscoe Conkling, who goes to war with President Garfield over the appointment of who would be the collector of the Port of New York. Roscoe Conklin, who uh, is a senior senator from the state of New York, who has, you know, was a longtime uh, confidant of President Grant, who was one of the main people that was pushing Grant for a third term in 1880. Uh, and so Conkling is very anti-civil service reform. In fact, he at one point calls it snivel service reform. Uh, he, he hates this idea of getting rid of, of, of the spoils system because no one has as much power under the spoils system as Ro- Roscoe Conklin. He's from New York. It's, you know, uh, the largest or one of the largest population states in the country at this point. Um, so he, you know, he, so he has more jobs to dole out really than just about anybody. Garfield is really more of a half-breed on civil service reform. It's really precipitated by Garfield appointing someone uh, to a job that, that Conklin doesn't want to have that job, and that job is collector of the Port of New York, uh, which is the most lucrative civil service job in the entire country. Conkling, of course, being a senator from New York, he wants to control who's in that job at all times. He actually ends up appointing someone that, that, that Conkling doesn't want, someone who Conkling very much opposes, a guy named William H. Robertson. And, uh, and that just enrages Conkling and, and sends him really into this conflict with Garfield about this particular job, but really in a larger sense, the whole issue of civil service reform. And what this really is is a battle between the power of the executive branch versus the legislative branch. The executive branch was weaker than the legislature at this point, considerably weaker. And that's not the case in the 20th and 21st century. This is one of the first major battles in which a president would be the winner, the battle over the appointment of the collector of the Port of New York. That was the battleground. To give you Conkling's perspective, it's not just about power. You know, Three things. He, he had helped a little bit on the campaign to deliver New York to Garfield, which was the decisive state in the election. You know, secondly, it's it's the way it's always been done. And, and lastly, Conkling believes that he has an agreement with Garfield from before the election. So Conkling comes up with this crazy plan to embarrass Garfield for his insubordination. And it really turns out to be one of the great all-time political backfires. They, they end up having this showdown, you know, and it goes back and forth really for about two months. And, it, you know, this is really the bulk of Garfield's presidency. I mean, it's such a short yeah. presidency. It doesn't appear that Conkling is going to be successful in getting Garfield to change his mind. You know, Garfield kind of digs in his heels and and at one point says the president is authorized to nominate and did so. And that really should be the end of the story as far as Garfield's concerned. That's far from the end of the story as far as Conkling is concerned. Conkling decides that he's going to embarrass Garfield. So Conkling and, of course, also Thomas Platt, who's the junior senator from New York and is an ally of Conkling. Conkling convinces Platt that the way to embarrass Garfield is to resign over this issue and then immediately be reappointed to the Senate by the New York State Legislature. Because, of course, the state legislatures at this point uh, appoint U.S. senators. It's, U.S. senators aren't directly elected by, by voters until you know, early in the 20th century. Conkling feels like it's this sort of grand gesture uh, once he resigns and then the people, the, the, the legislature in Albany sends him right back, he and Platt both, then that will be an indication that, you know, they have 
they have the upper hand and not Garfield, and therefore maybe Garfield should blink on this, uh, this nomination of Robertson. So Conkling and Platt go back to New York. This is in May of 1881. Garfield's been president for, you know, two months at this point. And they resign from the U.S. Senate. And they basically sit there and wait to be reappointed by the state legislature in Albany. However, because of course Conkling feels like, you know, he's so powerful and he has so many people beholden to him. Obviously, that's exactly what the, the state legislature is going to do. But unfortunately for him, he totally miscalculates. And it appears that Republicans in, in Albany are very glad to basically have a way to be done with this guy. Yeah. And they don't reappoint him or Platt. And so instead of, you know, making this triumphant return to Washington, that is the end of, of Conkling's political career. We talked to Todd Arrington about some of these early actions of the Garfield administration. There's only so much time in those early months, as Todd explains, because of the pain and the ass that was civil service and all the appointments. Garfield did an appointment of a Supreme Court justice. He appointed Frederick Douglass as the recorder of Washington, D.C., John M. Langston another African-American to be the minister of Haiti. Todd talks to us about just what Garfield was able to get done in the first four months of his presidency. Yeah, the, I mean, the battle over civil service reform, and particularly this battle with Conkling, really is the bulk of, of, of his presidency, unfortunately. He doesn't get to do much else. One of the things that really started to change Garfield's view on civil service reform was, was just inundated with people for hours and hours and hours every day wanting jobs. If you read his diary entries, you know, just every day he's, he's writing about how frustrated he is about how much time he has to spend dealing with these people. By the time Conkling and Platt finally resign, then he's dealing with his wife being very, very ill. Um, you know, Washington DC, even at this point in, in American history is, is still pretty, a pretty foul place to be in the warm weather. Uh, you know, I mean, we all know Washington's built basically on top of a swamp. The drainage is terrible. The public sanitation is terrible. So people really tend to flee Washington in the summer. Of course, the president can't really do that. Well, his wife, uh, Lucretia, ends up being very, very sick, wondering if she's going to live because she, you know, at one point they weren't sure she was going to live. Something else he was really passionate about and wanted to try to accomplish as president was modernizing the, the, the U.S. Navy. Uh, starting to move the Navy more toward a, you know, a, a steel ship Navy. So uh, I think that he, uh, he maybe would have, would have tried to do that had he lived and been able to be president longer. Uh, he was interested in, in uh, better relations with some of the, the nations in Latin America. Uh, so he was, you know, he and, and uh, Secretary of State James Blaine who, uh, had talked about, you know, hosting this, this conference in Washington uh, for, uh, you know, representatives of Latin American nations. Um, so I think there are things he certainly wanted to do and would have pursued had he lived, but of course he just didn't get the opportunity to do so. That really constituted the, the, the four months that he was president before he was shot. The problem with the cronyism of this boil system, besides the inherent corruption, was mainly that the best people didn't get the jobs, important government jobs to make the country operate properly. There's no service exams to root out the incompetent. There's no structure to who gets these jobs. Enter Charles Gateau, one of history's biggest losers, but there's really no other way to describe him. 
he wrote and gave one speech about Garfield one time to one audience in New York. That's it. That's his entire contribution to Garfield's election. It wasn't even a very good speech. Gateau followed Garfield to Washington, starts going to the White House, one of these office seekers, every single day to the State Department. And this man who's insane, who's failed at everything in his life, now wants to be the ambassador to France. Charles Guiteau, um had, he believed that he could do anything in life. And, um, and he, uh, he failed at everything, unfortunately. So he tried um, to have his own newspaper and he failed. He tried to be a lawyer and he failed. He tried a free love commune and he failed even there. The yep. women in the commune nicknamed him Charles Get Out. Yeah, I love um, that. Yeah, and so um, he, um, but his, so essentially he was mentally ill and he had delusions of, of grandeur. And so as soon as Garfield um, won the nomination, Guto got it in his head that he alone would um, win, win the election for Garfield. And then Garfield, out of gratitude, would give him um, a position of great power. So he wanted to be a diplomat. He wanted to be the consul general to France. Right. No big um, deal. He, and he, right. And obviously he had no background um, and, uh, and no ability to hold that position. So um, anyway, he, he tried to give one um, speech. He kind of stumbled through the speech and left um, for Garfield. Um, and then when Garfield won, um, we don't believe that that he had, um, it had been because of him. And so he um, became obsessed with Garfield and he went, to, he went to the White House every single day asking for um, this position. He even walked into the president's office at one point with Garfield in there to give him a copy of the speech that he had written. He went to the State Department every day asking uh, for this position until uh, the Secretary of State, James Blaine, finally said, stop, listen, this is never happening. And, uh, and that's when um, Guiteau's delusions became more dangerous. I want you to imagine just walking up to the gates of the White House and saying to the guards, yeah, I'd like to come in and talk to Trump about being the ambassador of France. But in Garfield's day, that was pretty much how it worked. Miss Ohio v. The World, she watches The Office on Netflix on repeat basically ever since we've been married. And I'm not aware of a more delusional television character than Michael Scott. But Charles Guiteau, Garfield's assassin, was about ten times more delusional about his life. Guiteau is rejected, and he realizes in his crazy brain the problem is Garfield. He was in the stalwarts. He was in with you know Conkling and Arthur, he thought, the New York guys. In fact, they barely would recognize him. But just before all this, he survived this accident at sea, uh, and he thought, you know, God had saved him for some important purpose. Ironically, Garfield was saved when he fell into the Erie Canal, like we talked about, um, and he thought God had saved him for a bigger role. The only difference is that Guteau was insane and unskilled, and Garfield was like the ultimate Renaissance man. Guteau claims that he spoke to God, and God told him to kill James Garfield for the good of the country. We talked to Candace Millard about the madness of Charles Guteau. So it made Garfield desperate. He was expected to meet with office seekers one-on-one from nine in the morning to one in the afternoon. So anybody could go who's like, look, I want to be the head of my post office in my little town. I'm going to go ask the president of the United States personally. And, you know, 
um, Americans felt very, very strongly that there should, you know, listen, this isn't a king. You know, we have a democracy, we've chosen this leader and I should have access to him. And um, so, you know, for Garfield, for somebody who was so intelligent and who had been thrust into this position and felt like, okay, I'm gonna do something good with it. He was desperate for time to work and think that he was just barraged by these office seekers. And Guteau especially, you know, Guteau absolutely thought, he's like, look, I should be first in line and I should get whatever I ask for because this is the way the spoil system works. And, um, and it was obviously not only completely unwieldy and impractical, but it was personally dangerous to Garfield himself. So as you say, Guteau, so he has this epiphany or he has, he believes this divine inspiration that God tells him that he should kill the president and make Chester Arthur, make Chester Arthur president. And so he begins to stalk Garfield every day. So he sits outside of the White House day after day, waiting for Garfield. And one day, Garfield leaves the White House, walks down the street to his Secretary of State's house. They walk through the streets of Washington alone together with Guteau following them the entire way, holding a loaded gun. They had an open cocktail party and Guteau came to it and he handed Lucretia his card and he carefully pronounced his name so she wouldn't forget it. So it's something obviously that could never happen today and should never have happened at the time, but there was no, even though we had already had a president who was assassinated, Lincoln had been assassinated obviously 16 years before, but there was no protection for the president and Garfield didn't want any protection and he hated any kind of encumbrance. He, he, he valued his freedom and he didn't think that there was a real danger to him personally. James Garfield's having a great morning. He's leaving for a vacation at the Jersey Shore. He's bested Roscoe Conkling. He has control over a Republican Congress again. His Secretary of State James Blaine meets him at the White House to chat about a few things and they ride together to the train station. Life and history can change in an instant like it did that July morning. It's July 2nd, 1881. Garfield is, uh, is really feeling very good that morning because Lucretia's health has turned. She's, she's healthy. She's getting healthy. Uh, she is down in New Jersey at the shore. Uh, they are going to go up to New England. He's going to give a speech at Williams College, which is his alma mater, and ended up being the alma mater of all of his sons, too. Um, and then they're, they're going to go on vacation, basically walking through a train station in Washington, D.C., the Baltimore and Potomac uh, Depot in Washington, with James Blaine, who, again, is, is, is his, just out of nowhere, this uh, guy by the name of Charles Coteau appears behind Garfield's uh, with a with 44 caliber English Bulldog revolver and uh, pulls the trigger twice. Uh, the first bullet grazes Garfield's arm, but the second one lodges in his back. And so Garfield kind of cries out, my God, what is this? And, and falls to the floor. Guiteau kind of famously makes a statement, I did it, I'll go to jail for it. I'm a stalwart and, and Arthur will be president. Learn more about Guiteau, we realize, okay, there was, there was some politics involved here. There was also some clear mental illness as well. Guiteau considers himself a Republican. He thinks he's doing the country a favor, that civil service reform is gonna destroy the country. Uh, and the only way to, to stop this is to remove James Garfield as president. Mm -hmm. 
Garfield's seriously wounded, but he's only 49. He's in great shape, he's big, he's strong, he doesn't die. Candace's book really takes off after Garfield's shot. Here enters my second least favorite character in the story, Dr. Bliss. It's just bad luck that Dr. Bliss gets involved in Garfield's care. Uh, he's really the worst doctor for this situation. He'd actually spent a lot of his life in Cleveland, was a surgeon in the Civil War. Medicine was just not advanced at all. Candace tells us about Dr. Bliss and his role in Garfield's demise. Right, so his name was Dr. Dr. Willard Bliss. His mother had given him the first name Dr. And um, and he was a really interesting character. You know, he... Um, had he had been at um, Abraham Lincoln's um, deathbed, um, which is the reason that Robert Todd Lincoln had called him in um, when it, Robert Todd Lincoln was Garfield's Secretary of War, and when Garfield was shot, Robert Todd Lincoln had had called um, Bliss in to to help take care of him. But Bliss had been in prison. He had um, tried to sell something called Kundurango, which was supposed to cure everything from cancer to syphilis. I'm sure would have tried to sell it today to cure the coronavirus. <laughs> um, and, um, and, uh, and he saw in this national tragedy, uh, once in a lifetime opportunity for himself, for personal fame and power. So when he was called to the train station after Garfield was shot, he, um, first of all, immediately started probing the wound uh, for the bullet even though he was obviously in the most bacteria-laden environment you can imagine, um, and repeatedly probing for this for this bullet, um, and as soon as they got Garfield back to the White House, he um, announced that um, no other doctors would be needed. I mean, at that time there were like nine different doctors trying to help Garfield. He dismissed all the other doctors, and he took um, sole possession of the care. Um, of Garfield, and um, and it was an incredibly, incredibly dangerous thing. Bliss doesn't believe in bacteria or germs. If you if you can't see them, how can they exist? We're not that far removed, you know, from leeches, sucking out the bad blood. We said before that medicine was primitive, but that's not entirely true. In Europe, there was an antibacterial movement among surgeons. We talked to Candace about the old timey medicine and how it killed a president. The last thing. Bliss wanted was for Garfield to die, but he was afraid of anything that was, he was very, very aware that the world was watching. He was afraid of any new or in his eyes, un, untested um, medical care, which included antisepsis. Even though Joseph Lister, who was a very, very uh, well-respected, renowned um, surgeon in England, had discovered antisepsis 16 years earlier, had gone around the world warning doctors, including to the United States, warning doctors that if they didn't sterilize their hands and their instruments, they ran the very real risk of killing their patients. Um, but for some reason, most of the doctors in the United States didn't listen. You know, they 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 would wear their surgical aprons with, you know, splattered with with blood and <laughs> every other kind of material you can imagine with surgery without washing them, without changing them, because they thought the, the more they had on them, the more experience it showed. 
Um, and even those who did try antisepsis, who sterilized their instruments and things, if they dropped them during surgery, they would just pick them up and continue to use them. They wouldn't right. sterilize them again. Or if they needed both of their hands for them, they would put a knife in their mouth and then continue to use it during. So obviously, for obvious reasons, antisepsis, even when it was tried, um, was not working. And um, and Bliss was the last person to use antisepsis. So Gar he was Garfield with a bullet in his back and people continuing, Bliss, continuing, continuing to probe that wound with instruments, with his fingers, with no antisepsis. Garfield holds on. For months, he endures terrible pain, infection after infection. Dr. Bliss kicks out any other doctor that wants to look after him. But he's just getting the worst treatment, the exact opposite of how we would care for someone with a gunshot wound today. There's some crazy things that happen during his treatment. you got to read the book to, to get more of it. But necessity is really the mother of invention. First, the Navy comes in and builds this makeshift air conditioner, the first I'd ever heard of one. There's no electricity, so a system of fans blows over giant blocks of ice, and it works. Reduces the temperature in the White House by some 20 degrees that summer. But his diet goes from like porridge to only rich foods and brandy. Either way, none of it was working for Garfield. Goes from 210 pounds down to, you know, two months later, 130 pounds. Candace takes us through the treatment of the president and how her book really details just how painful this must have been. You know, he was, yeah, very strong, healthy, handsome man, um, you know, and and it's hard to to know from this distance in history, but everything you read about him, you know, he'd give you a bear hug rather than a handshake. He loved his friends. He had a big boisterous laugh and he loved life. And he was, um, yeah, he was, he was 49. He was strong and healthy and um, it's heartbreaking. You know, we talk about the, um, the Garfield home in Mentor, Ohio, they have there his death mask. Yeah. And it'll break your heart, you know, because he was, starving to death as well and um you know just riddled riddled with infection and it was absolutely horrible death i mean he he suffered tremendously alcohol rich food it was really bad speaking of invention one of the great inventors of american history alexander graham bell makes an appearance in our story graham bell had already invented the telephone he's famous and he's hard at work on a way to save president garfield Graham starts working and invests in what he calls an induction balance. It's basically a metal detector to try and find the missing bullet lodged in the president. But again, the ego of Dr. Bliss ruins what was really Garfield's last best chance to make a recovery. Bell was still a young man at this point, and he had only invented the um, telephone a few years earlier, and it had made him famous, and it had given him a little bit of money, and he had won an award. And so for the first time, he could do whatever he wanted. And he had so many ideas um, and so many things that he wanted to do. But as soon as he found out about the shooting, he dropped absolutely everything and, um, and worked night and day to um, create this invention balance. So this is um, 16 years before the invention of the medical x-ray. And, um, and so Bell, at first, you know, he, he, he knew what was happening to Garfield and he knew how he was suffering and he knew that his he knew that the doctors were going to kill him and he said science should be able to do better than that so he tried a lot of he was like you know can we illuminate the body so we can see where the bullet is um, but then he remembered that he had this induction bounce that he had actually um, created to try to get rid of static in the telephone line that was created by the telegram wires um, and so uh, he thought I can change it 
to find, um, to use it, as you said, as a metal detector. And um, it absolutely worked. And he did test after test after test. So he would get a side of beef and shoot a bullet into it. And he tested on that. And he also, you know, this is not that long after the Civil War. There are a lot of men walking around with bullets inside of them. And um, so he went and he tested it on Civil War veterans. And it absolutely worked. Um, and it would go on to work. So there was, it was another 16 years before the invention of the medical x-ray. And it, they used it during the Boer War. And they used it during um, the Russo-Japanese War. And it saved many, many lives. But what happened is so um, Bliss hears about it. And he is desperate at this point. He realizes Garfield's dying. And so he um, allows Bell to come in and use his induction balance. But Bliss had announced that the bullet was on the right side of the body because right. that's where it went in. And so he would only let Bell test the right side of the body while the bullet had gone to the left and it had um, buried itself under, um, under Garfield's pancreas. So that's where it was. And he would never allow him <laughs> to even test the left side of the body. Um, also, Bell got back to his laboratory and he had an idea. So there weren't very many telephones at that time, but obviously Bell had a telephone and there was a telephone in the White House and he called the White House and he talked to um, the people there and he was like, look, tell me, is the president by chance lying on a bed with metal coils? And they said, yes, he is. And that was actually pretty rare at that time, but obviously metal coils are going to affect a metal detector. Yeah. And so he actually tests him, I think twice, right? And both times he doesn't let him test his left side. <laughs> That's right. Why, yeah, no, it's why incredibly not? frustrating. You know, it's, it's just about ego because he had already publicly announced it's on the right side. It was in the newspapers. You know, the president's doctor says the bullet's on the right side. So, so to Bliss, it had to be on the right side and he didn't want to hear anything else. Garfield continues to deteriorate. He finally tells Bliss to screw off and says, I want to go to the Jersey Shore. He says, maybe the ocean breezes will help my recovery, but Really, he just wants to get out of the hot, smelly, claustrophobic White House that he's been stuck in for months. If he's going to die, he, he wants to do it by the ocean. A special train car takes the president to Elberon, New Jersey, and it's not the Jersey Shore that we know from the TV series. It was really one of the great vacation spots on the eastern seaboard. People don't vacation yet like we do today, but the rich can, and Garfield does. They get him to the shore, and Todd Arrington tells us the final chapter in Garfield's life. Garfield himself eventually decides he's got to get out of the White House. And here he kind of harkens back to his, his love of the sea as a young man. We talked about, you know, he wanted to be a sailor and he loved the ocean. And, and so in early September, they take him to, uh, to Elberon, New Jersey, in a cottage there. And that's where he ends up dying uh, on September 19th, 1881. He dies at age Toast put on trial in Washington, D.C. for the murder of the president. His crazy, terrible life has brought to light in the media. He has a note on him when he shoots Garfield, for example, for General Sherman, then the commander of all the armies. It reads, General Sherman, I've just shot the president. I shot him several times as I wished him to go as easily as possible. His death was a political necessity. I'm a lawyer, theologian, and politician. I'm a stalwart of the stalwarts. I was with General Grant and the rest of our men in New York during the canvas. 
I'm going to the jail. Please order out your troops and take possession of the jail at once. End quote. Dude was crazy, and his trial was crazy. It's worth getting Candace's book just for the insanity that ensues with Guiteau following the shooting. But the one thing he wasn't crazy about was his defense at trial. Facing execution, he decides to argue that he didn't kill the president. His doctors did. He merely shot the president. We asked Candace if Guiteau was technically right in his defense. I think he's right. Obviously, he's right. And I think there's a very, very high likelihood that Garfield would have survived. Like I said, there were many, I mean, one of the the, the um, policemen who took Guteau to the prison after he shot Garfield had a bullet in his brain from the, in his head from uh, the Civil War. So there were lots of people walking around with bullets. This, the bullet that hit Garfield, that went, so one hit his arm, one hit his back. It didn't hit any vital organs. It didn't hit his spinal cord. It went through the spinal column, but not, not, the, not the cord. Um, and again, he's a, a relatively young, healthy man. And, um, and at first, he fought off the initial infection. Obviously, there's going to be some infection that's introduced with the bullet itself and the pieces of bone and the pieces of fabric that go in. Um, but he fought off that initial infection. Everybody thought that he was going to die within days. And he didn't, and he started to get better. But obviously, if you have continual introduction of infection day after day after day, eventually um, that's going to tell and 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 that's what happened and that is absolutely what killed him yes as far as the uh, trial um, was one of the first insanity defenses but um, Guto did say um, you know look I didn't I just shot the president I didn't kill him his doctors killed him and and he's right the country mourns Garfield's death they were led to believe that he might make it so when he dies it is a bit of a shock we talked to Todd Arrington about a country in mourning for its murdered president as he makes his way back to Cleveland, Ohio. So Garfield's death really does take people by surprise. He's, he lives for 80 days after he's shot. The doctors are putting out medical bulletins every day talking about Garfield's health. And the American people are being led to believe, because of course the doctors aren't being honest in those medical bulletins and saying, oh, we think we've done something terrible here. We, <laughs> we don't think he's doing very well. They're saying that, you know, his disposition is good and his, his you know, his respiration and his, his heartbeat. And, you know, they're basically making people believe that he's going to eventually going to be okay. So even though people around him were not surprised when he died, the American people by and large were shocked. Um, they do a, uh, a funeral train kind of similar to, to what they did for Lincoln when they were taking his body back to Illinois. You know, his body lies in state in the Capitol building in Washington. Then they do a funeral train between Washington and Cleveland. And then they have a public funeral uh, on Public Square in Cleveland uh, on September 26, 1881. Uh, I think it's something like 200,000 people that actually oh, filed wow. by the casket as it was on display in, in public square. So it was a huge, huge funeral, a huge outpouring of, of sympathy and support for, for the family. Um, money was raised uh, so that Lucretia, you know, had money to live on and for the rest of her life, which lasted until March of 1918. So she outlived Garfield by 36 and a half years. One thing I remembered from my first reading of, of Candace's book is, how does she know all this about Charles Gateau? She knows everything about him, what he said, what he was even thinking. It makes you think that she's got to be making some of this stuff up. We asked author Candace Millard about the trial of Charles Guteau for the murder of President Garfield. 
and where she found all this good stuff on the assassin and his madness. As he was delusional, he was thrilled by the attention that he was getting after he shot the president. And so he gave every interview that he could. He dusted off his, his um, autobiography that he had been working and he sent it to the Herald. Um, but also the, the trial itself, you know, they were very, very nervous that for any reason he would get off because the American people wanted to see him die, wanted to see him pay for what he had done. And so it was um, an incredibly detailed trial, not just about the event, but about Guiteau himself. And so they talked about his family history, his own history um, with madness. And he talks about all these moments, like when he was on the steamship that crashed into another steamship, thought, okay, God has saved me for a great purpose. And then he thought that purpose was to kill Garfield. And so um, I, I, you know, he talks about when he, the moment when he had the divine inspiration. So I remember my editor asking me at a couple points, how do you know this? And I say, I can show you exactly the page where he says this, you know, at, and that's why I feel really strongly about, and for my notes, for a lot of narrative nonfiction books and the notes section, it'll just be like maybe a paragraph or two about this is generally why I found that the information for this chapter, but I go point by point because I want people to be able to see if they wonder, like, how did she know that? They can look back and see exactly where I found it. The death of James A. Garfield on September 19th, 1881 wasn't completely in vain. There's a few positive changes that come out of it. One, everyone realizes that infection and bacteria are real things and they kill people. Joseph Lister and his antisepsis technique in surgery finally takes hold as a largely proven theory. That innovation will save, I don't know, thousands, maybe millions of lives out of Garfield's death. Two, his successor, Chester A. Arthur, although certainly not on Mount Rushmore, does change his ways after Garfield's death. The national concern was that just after the, you know, we'd gotten rid of this power-hungry Roscoe Conkling, now his puppet, Chester A. Arthur, is in office. But Arthur shuns Conkling, uh, and he tries to accomplish some of the goals that Garfield had to honor his life. The main legislation he gets passed is the Pendleton Civil Service Act, just 15 months after Garfield's death. It requires a civil service test for any applicant. It also creates a civil service commission to oversee the patronage system. It wasn't perfect, but it was a start. Lastly, we, we talk about Garfield's death and how it may have unified the country. Unlike Lincoln's murder, you know, where half the country was happy about it, we wrap up with Candace Millard talking about the positives that come out of Garfield's tragic death. They did an autopsy after Garfield's death, and when the autopsy report was released, it was clear to every American that Garfield didn't have to die, they didn't have to lose their president, and it was clear why they did. And, um, and you know, Bliss was publicly humiliated. Um, but what happened is that finally antisepsis was adopted across the country, saving uh, countless lives. So it was obviously a, a huge, huge medical leap um, for our for our country. Um, and then um, also, you know, politically, it was the beginning of the end of the spoil system as it existed at that time. And Chester Arthur, who again had been um, completely Conkling's puppet, um, while Garfield was dying, he completely pulled away from Conkling. And after Garfield's death, he tried to become the kind of president that. Garfield would have been had he lived. And obviously, Chester Arthur is not one of our great presidents, 
but he was so much more than anybody had believed he could be. You know, he he tried to be honest and he tried to do the right thing. And he tried, and, you know, he signed the Pendleton Act, which again, started the beginning of the end of the spoil system. So he tried to end what had really created his own career. Um, and then it brought the country together in a way that it hadn't for so long. You know, with Lincoln's death, everyone blamed the South. Um, but with Garfield's death, the South said he was our president as well. And they mourned with the North and, um, and it, it brought the two sides together in a, in a common grief and helped to heal those very, very deep and longstanding wounds. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading Our book recommendation is, you know, duh, is Candace Millard's Destiny Republic 2011 New York Times bestseller from Penguin Random House it's a fantastic book for history fans, true crime fans, even our frontline medical professionals that have been such heroes through this whole crisis. There's something in there for everybody. There's a link in the show notes to, to buy it. Do yourself a favor and read that book this summer. Candace's book was used in 2016 as the basis for a PBS movie through the great American Experience folks. Uh, it's available on Amazon. Uh, I think it's even free to download. It's 90 minutes or so. Um, American Experience always does such a great job and Candace was a writer and consultant on that uh, and the entire movie is based on her book. Thanks to Sarah Chase from Clear and Vivid Podcast with Alan Alda for joining us. Uh, she joined us from New York City during the coronavirus outbreak to talk about her show, Garfield and Hiram College. And Check that show out just in season 7 this year. They've had Dr. Fauci, Paul McCartney, Tom Hanks, Betty White. Uh, a great show and, and might be some of the best guests any podcast gets that I've heard in 2020. Subscribe to their show anywhere you get your podcast, or just follow Alan Alda at Alan Alda on Twitter. He drops those shows every week. Uh, lastly, the man, the myth, the legend, our friend Todd Arrington, the site manager from the James A. Garfield National Historical Site in Mentor, Ohio. Todd took us around last summer. We're bummed we couldn't do the interview in person up there, uh, but we asked Todd to, just to talk about the the historic site there in the National Park Service. It's a huge property and plenty to see and do. Todd shares also, you know, there's really three different Garfield Memorial sites in Cleveland. Since we're doing this during the whole coronavirus, uh, you know, everything being kind of closed down, our grounds are open right now, <laughs> but uh, facilities, you know, the buildings are closed down. Um, so here in Northeast Ohio, of course, so much of Garfield's life was, was, was right here in Northeast Ohio. There is a replica birthplace cabin in, in what's now Moreland Hills, was then Orange Township. Uh, of course, Lakeview Cemetery is here in Cleveland. That is where the Garfield Memorial is located in Cleveland, which is just a beautiful, beautiful memorial. And then, of course, our location is in Menor. Uh, we are, you know, probably 30 minutes, 30 to 35 minutes from downtown Cleveland. We do have several original buildings on the property. And then, of course, sort of our, our, our primary resource there that people really come to see is the home. Uh, this is the home that James and Lucretia Garfield lived in. So we do guided tours inside the home. Uh, those guided tours are led by, uh, you know, uniformed National Park Service rangers. 
the other thing that's really unique about our site is when people go into the house, the artifacts that they see displayed there are things that the Garfields actually owned and used. We have about 85% original artifacts displayed in the home. So wow. that is very, very unique among presidential homes and certainly among presidential homes in the national park system. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's really a, a wonderful thing to, to have that, you know, we know we're showing people the home uh, in context um, and, and they're seeing things that the Garfields actually owned and used. So that's really special. We're open in the summertime, which for us is May 1st through October 31st. We're open seven days a week. But in the winter, uh, you know, we do go into a winter hours situation between November 1st and April 30th, uh, where we're only open Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate, you know, I came up there and you gave me an awesome tour and we, and we looked around the house and the, the visitor center and the grounds and uh, I'll definitely be back up there next time I'm up in Cleveland. I'll Good. look you up and we'll, we'll hang out. I'd love it. That'd be great. That'll do it for episode three. We tried really hard to get it all into one episode instead of a two-parter. It's long. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the ride from this unlikely rise to the presidency, the lunacy that led to him being shot and the medical malpractice that led to his death. Just uh, wish we could have seen four years of James Garfield instead of four months. We're going to change gears a little bit in episode four and talk about Ohio versus campaigns. We'll look at the historic presidential campaign moments that took place in Ohio. Uh, really going to be talking mostly about Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, FDR, and Barack Obama, some real heavy hitters. Looking forward to that show. It'll be a fun one. Uh, thanks again for joining us, guys. Try and get out there and enjoy your summer. We'll see you in a couple of weeks for episode four. Mr. Garfield's been shot down, shot down, shot down. Mr. Garfield's been shot down low. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.